This is section 30 of Newspaper Articles by Mark Twain. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Newspaper Articles by Mark Twain, section 30, Territorial Enterprise, January 1868. Territorial Enterprise, January 7, 1868. Mark Twain's Letters from Washington, number 2. Special Correspondence of the Enterprise, Washington, December 16, 1867. J. Ross Brown's Report. It is voluminous, and has remarks and statistics concerning all the mines of any importance, figures that will show at a glance what each has done, and what it is doing, and what it has cost and is costing to do it, what the profits are, what the losses are, etc. It contains as good information as could be got concerning new districts and their prospects. To get this varied information and these manifold statistics, Mr. Brown had to employ persons residing in the several mining localities to furnish them. These gentlemen have performed their duties pretty faithfully, but of course they have yielded to the natural mining instinct to glorify the leads of their part of the country with weighty adjectives. We were all prone to do that in our day and generation. They speak of prodigious veins, and magnificent deposits, and wonderful richness, etc., and behold their tongues are touched with inspiration, and they prophesy. They reveal the things that shall come to pass, with the easy confidence of Elisha's newly invested with the enchanted mantle. They trench upon the jurisdiction of the Almighty, and disclose the secrets of the kingdom of heaven to Congress, with a comfortable indifference to consequences that could originate nowhere on earth save in the placid breast of an honest miner. I understand this thing, we all do, that have been miners, for all miners are, by nature and instinct, prophets. We understand it, but Congress wouldn't, so it has been necessary to drive a pen straight through all these revelations of the things that are to come. The most shining prophecies are to be utterly extinguished. In truth, all the prophecies that are not manifestly authorized from on high will be pitilessly expunged. Mr. Brown wishes the report to be received with the utmost good faith by the world, and to bear upon its face the evidences that it is worthy of such a reception. Consequently, it will not do to bring suspicion upon it with prophecies in this age of skepticism. The rich deposits, or adjectives, that occur all through the sub-reports will be expunged also, and for the same reason that the words of prophecy are condemned. No puffs will be allowed to remain, lest they impair the confidence of the public in the truthfulness of the book. Therefore, you can now understand that, voluminous as the work is, it must all be rewritten, and thoroughly weeded of its defects. This is a vast labor, and much time and patience will have to be devoted to it. The book will not be ready for the press for some time yet. The reports from all the great mines, I mean statistics of their yield of ores in tons, and the result of the same in bullion, etc., will be brought up to about the present time, and the book be thereby made as complete as possible. The moral of this long report, the verdict of it, may be summed up in a few sentences. Save in the great underground gravel channels, placer mining is finished, is dead. 
nothing but deep mining vein mining will do now the muscle mining of the pan and shovel must give place to critical science miners must adjourn from the exhausted hillsides to the chemist's laboratory and be educated to the higher grades of their profession therefore the proposed national school of mines is become a necessity such is the verdict personal hovey is here general hovey of nevada he is a member of the senate i think i recollect that he ran for that position mr stowe is here also stowe of carson city once sergeant-at-arms of the legislature the nation gets along better now there are other nevadians in washington thomas d julian of humboldt john s mayhew of esmeralda in maryland just at present george t terry of austin robert m howland and wife are expected julian is looking after his indian affairs he has claims his prospects promise well s t gage has gone to ohio he thinks of returning to nevada overland he desires that no mention shall be made of it judge mccorkle of your city is here and will sail for the pacific in the course of a week or two he has been visiting his home in ohio s e hughes of gold hill is here also he has been looking at lands in virginia and iowa with a view to investing likes iowa best he will return to nevada very shortly to stay a while j m walker comes to washington occasionally he looks well and is prosperous i hear that he is speculating in lands and one thing or another in virginia and that he has bought him a homestead at binghamton new york for which he paid twenty five thousand dollars pat hickey of the city of virginia and other places in nevada was here the other night so i am told i am sorry i failed to see him but i hear that he is flourishing and from what i can gather he was feeling well his toast was the same one be kind to your friends and he had fifty to drink it that beat beggs that snowy night that beggs and i got the school report especially for the virginia union and somehow it appeared in the enterprise in the most mysterious manner the next morning and failed to appear where it was intended to appear but if it were the last act of my life i would affirm that it was through no connivance of mine the scrub who had charge of the public school would not let me have the report for the enterprise because it had said he was an ass which was true and if he had been half a man he would have been flattered by it but he would give it to beggs because he had nothing against the union particularly i found beggs at eight o'clock in the evening he had his little dark lantern that looked badly because whenever beggs got out his lantern there was going to be trouble we went down and got the report and coming back through the driving snow we met pat hickey and went in and drank be kind to your friends it took forty minutes to do it properly and then beggs proposed himself to go to the enterprise and leave a copy of the report which was done it was duly copied and he took the original and started to go to the union with it at midnight when we were going home we passed mccluskey's and heard a familiar voice we went in, and Beggs was standing on a table reading the manuscript school report by the light of his lantern to a crowd of mellow but singularly appreciative and enthusiastic Cornishmen from the Ophir night shifts, who didn't understand a word of it, but seemed to like it all the better on that account. They cheered all the pauses with the strictest impartiality. 
John Church entered at the same moment we did, looking angry, Beggs stopped, and smiled down upon Church, his smile of naive suavity, a smile that was gilded all over with honest pride, with conscious merit, with triumph, and said, "'I ain't—' <clears throat> i ain't to be depended on when i carry my lantern ain't i by god i've had this old report four hours and so he had that was why the union was obliged to go to press without it beggs was a good fellow and no one can say that i ever intentionally helped him to get into trouble i wish i could have been pat hickey the other night they say he had all williard's hotel responding to his be kind to your friends till well along towards daybreak. E. A. Pretois, formerly of Virginia and Sacramento, is Senator Stewart's private secretary now. Coast Matters Mr. Stewart made a speech in the Senate a day or two ago in reply to Garrett Davis of Kentucky. Davis's was a carefully prepared manuscript speech wherein he attempted to show that the tendency of legislation at present could have but one result if persisted in the result of investing the negro with the power to rule over white men and dictate the course they should pursue stuart's reply was extemporaneous and consequently had more fire in it perhaps than polish the point it made was the manifestly strong one that one negro cannot rule or dictate to ten white men and that as long as the two colors are divided in that proportion in the country the devil raised up in Mr. Davis's prophetic visions could never amount to much of a devil practically. There was nothing about one negro that ten white men need to fear. The speech met with a flattering reception by the Senate. Senator Nye and Stewart have both just introduced bills of great importance to Nevada. Nye's is declaratory of the purpose of the Nevada town site law passed by Congress early in 1867. Secretary Browning, although aware that that law was one which had been greatly desired by the citizens of Virginia, at least, did not feel at liberty to execute it while the law of 1864 remained unrepealed, and must in some cases interfere with its operation. If passed, Governor Nye's bill will straighten the matter out. Senator Stewart's bill gives Nevada the privilege of locating the public lands according to her wherever she pleases. On the sections along the railroad that alternate with those belonging to the railroad company if she chooses it gives her the privilege of locating the lands donated to the public building fund and issuing scrip upon them at once it also makes the salt springs and mines of nevada the property of the state if the bill should pass in its present shape it would bring some fifty thousand or sixty thousand dollars into the state treasury the holidays are approaching Congress will adjourn on Friday for a couple of weeks. Washington will be deserted the next day. I shall help desert it. I suppose, of course, I shall stay in New York till the national wisdom congregates again. If I hear anything while I am gone, I will report it to you. Mark Twain Territorial Enterprise, January 11, 1868 Mark Twain's Letters from Washington, Number 3 Special Correspondence of the Enterprise Washington, December twentieth, 1867. The Lost Chief Found. 
Colonel Eli Parker, chief of the Six Nations and staff officer to General Grant, was to have been married last Tuesday morning to Miss Sackett, an accomplished girl of seventeen, highly connected, and worthy of the best man in the country. General Grant was to have given away the bride, and the wedding ceremony was to have taken place in great state at the Church of the Epiphany, whose parlor has a monopoly of all the marriages that pay. Truly it has been said, Ye know not when the bridegroom cometh, more particularly when the bridegroom don't come at all. And he didn't come in this instance, or, as General Grant gravely expressed it, he failed to qualify. The five foolish virgins that had oil in their lamps were no better off than the two hundred and fifty foolish cues that hadn't, for lamps, however so well they may be supplied with oil, cannot discover a bridegroom that is not present, but on the contrary is far away with a conspiring and malignant Indian. The wedding party went swearing and sorrowing home, wondering what could have become of the grand sachem of the Six Nations, what could keep him away at such a time what he could possibly mean by such conduct as these they wondered for full twenty-four hours and then the defendant came to light the lost bridegroom was found the prodigal son rose up and returned to his own precinct he explained his absence he said that after he had borrowed a shirt i should say a scarf from general grant on saturday evening he saw some friends and afterwards an hour or two later went off to take a walk alone. An Indian of his confederation met him and said he had important things to say to him, walked with him to a convenient room, gave him a glass of wine, and opened the conversation. But almost immediately Colonel Parker felt strangely and lay down on the bed. He remembered nothing that occurred after that, save that he awoke out of a deep sleep, apparently in the middle of a dark night—he does not know which night it was and by his bedside, never flitting, still was sitting, still was sitting, that ghastly, grim, and ancient Indian from the night's Plutonian shore, only he, and nothing more. Quoth the Indian, never more. Then this ebon bird, beguiling the colonel's sad soul into smiling, by the grave and stern decorum of the countenance it bore, bird or fiend, he cried, upstarting, wrathful to his heart's hot core. What's the time of night, I wonder? Tell me that, thou son of thunder, from the night's Plutonian shore. How long have I in dreams been soaring? How long been wheezing, gagging, snoring? How long in savage nightmares roaring since I lay down before? Quoth the buck, An hour or more. You've been sick and may be sicker, because of late you've stopped your liquor, a thing you've never done before. Here's some stuff the doctor sent ye, of your folly, quick, repent ye. Take it, chief, and seek Nepenthe, remembering grief no more. Bird, the colonel cried, upstarting. Bird or fiend, he cried, upstarting. Bird or fiend, as if his soul in that one phrase he did outpour. Pass that stuff the doctor sent me. Move the frame thy God hath lent thee. Take thy form from off my door. Take thy beak from out my jug. Go on thy bust outside my door, quoth the Choctaw. Nevermore. Colonel Parker took the medicine, and immediately the fatal drowsiness came upon him again. He fell asleep, and never woke again till Wednesday morning, 
a day after general grant assembled himself at the church to assist at his nuptials it may be all very funny lightly considered but seriously regarded it is sad enough it has brought into unpleasant newspaper notoriety a soldier who has fought bravely and faithfully throughout the long war and was honored with the confidence and esteem of the first general of our day and it has also given the same unhappy notoriety to a modest retiring young girl and has caused her the extremest suffering the bridegroom's is the easiest case for whether he be blameless or not he is a man and a soldier and can bear untoward fortune and the gossip of idle tongues with soldierly fortitude colonel parker's friends are well satisfied that his community of indians are at the bottom of the whole affair that they are jealous of foreign marriage complications that they wish him to wed with a woman of his own race and that they conspired to stave off his marriage with the white girl and break off the match if possible the indian who drugged him was gone when he awoke the last time and has not been seen since general grant has taken the matter into his own hands and will sift the mystery to the bottom if it comes out straight colonel parker will fare well if it does not it will be farewell to colonel parker a voluminous telegram a telegram for the government consisting of six thousand four hundred and eighty words was received here to-night from the san francisco chamber of commerce it is the full report of that body in favor of and urging the ratification of the sandwich islands treaty i think its strongest argument is that with such a treaty in force the government would have a fair pretext for resisting by military power the occupation of the islands by england or france if we can't get the property it is at least wise to see that they don't we certainly cannot get it the king will not sell we shall not seize it of course its free use is indispensable to our pacific commerce hence we should take care that that free use shall be secured to us the reciprocity treaty blocks the game on all obstacles to this nothing else can i know of no objection to the treaty except that it will decrease our national revenue by one hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year but inasmuch as the pacific coast has but to pay that in the form of increased prices charged for sugar to cover the duties perhaps the government had better tax the coast people to that amount on something else and secure to itself the valuable freedom of the islands through the reciprocity treaty still it would be just like these solons here to forget all judgment in the desire to save that trifle of revenue they give one hundred million dollars to the pacific railroad and five hundred thousand dollars a year to the china mail and now it would be exceedingly like them to forget the sandwich islands are just as much a necessary part of the grand highway they are creating between new york and china as damascus is a necessary part of the legitimate route from a sinful world to the devil it would be like them it would so accord with their policy of saving at the spigot while they lose at the bung yesterday the senate shut off the stationary supplies of its members that was the meanest thing the smallest business the cheapest fraud i ever heard of i know nothing of it i wrote an order for four reams of fancy foolscap and got a blind lunatic to sign charles sumner's name to it no man can counterfeit the genuine signature unless there is something awful the matter with him 
and went up to the Senate and presented it. They said it would not do. I asked if they meant to insinuate anything against the soundness of the signature, and they said no. They could see by the general horribleness of it that some member of Congress wrote it, but that was not the idea. And then they told me of that poor little swindle of a retrenchment. It is nothing but a blind, nothing but a miserable little ten-thousand-dollar blind to deceive the people with. Those parties are generating something. They are sitting, silent, spreading themselves, hatching. Under cover of that little dab of retrenchment which they have thrown into the people's eyes, they are getting ready to steal about four hundred millions of dollars, and then you will hear them cackle. I suppose I shall have to go back to writing letters on old blotting paper again shortly. The more I think of it, the more indignant I become. Here, some time ago, we bought an iceberg for seven million dollars, and lately we bought a volcano and an infernal nest of earthquakes for seventeen million dollars, and now we are shutting off a drayload of stationery and six bits worth of sugar revenues to get even again. Bother such retrenchment! California Senator the news arrived today by telegraph that the California legislature has elected Eugene Casserly to be United States Senator to succeed Honorable John Connus. He will succeed one of the pleasantest men, socially, and one of the best-hearted that exists, and by the same token a man that has worked hard for the coast, done his duty faithfully, and accomplished all that any man could have done. Do you know what particular stripe of democracy Mr. Casserly is variegated with? Had I better support him with the administration, or had I better hoist out my paint and get ready to go on the warpath? But perhaps you fail to catch my drift. What I mean is, is his democracy of the poetical stripe, as set forth in bombastic platforms, or is it of the practical stripe that looks to the most goods to the greatest number? In plain English, how is Casserly on stationary? For behold, even as a man is on stationary, so shall he be concerning the greater things of the covenant. Would it be agreeable to Casserly for me to collect his mileage for him, do you think? For President. Associate Justice Field of the Supreme Bench is widely talked of, latterly, as the Democratic candidate for President of the United States, an able man, a just one, and one whose judicial and political garments are clean, a man well fitted for the place. No man can tell what an hour may bring forth, especially if the politicians have leased that hour, but just at the present moment the presidential contest bids far to take a particularly sporting shape, for verily is there not a field on the one side and a chase on the other? Now, therefore, where is the fox that shall fly the chase, cross the field in safety, and gain the cover of the White House? Adjournment. Congress adjourned yesterday. I don't know whether they have done anything or not. I don't think they have. However, let us not forget that they have retrenched. They have passed the stationary resolution. They have eased up some on one thousand millions of debt. They have smitten the Goliath of gold with a pebble. They have saved the country. God will bless them. Let the new David bring the head of the monster to the foot of the throne, and go after more. I tremble to think they may abolish the franking privilege next. The Ark has rested on Ararat. 
the most of the animals have gone away to new york and elsewhere but i believe the pacific delegation proposed to remain here during the vacation and get ready for business for stirring times are at hand mark twain territorial enterprise january thirtieth eighteen sixty eight mark twain's letter from washington number four washington january tenth eighteen sixty eight public stealing that is the polite term now what are we coming to when language like that is freely launched at the great officers of the government not in the street alone and in private conversation but in a barely modified form in the senate chamber of the united states they almost speak in that way of the secretary of the treasury the country seems to have become satisfied that his department is rotten with swindling and rascality that at last even the senate has partly awakened to the importance of doing something or saying something it is a slow body and timid andrew can scare it with a growl all those senators believe and have believed for weeks that through the improper and unlawful conduct of the treasury officers the government has been swindled out of two hundred million dollars a year through whiskey and cotton frauds but they dared not say anything until their silence at last began to breed the impression among the people that congress was in the ring too along with the treasury that has stirred them up a little and two or three senators have lately made a sort of show of wanting to know something about these frauds one charge against mr mcculloch is peculiar laws were passed in eighteen sixty two sixty three and sixty four providing for the sale of cotton and other confiscated property seized during the war and establishing a court of claims for the examination of cases where it might be alleged that some of these seizures were unjust a court with power to restore such property as might be proven to have been taken by mistake from staunch union men etc under these laws sales amounting to thirty six million dollars net were made it is alleged now that ten million dollars of this sum has been restored to parties claiming to have been union men and restored too on the individual responsibility of the secretary of the treasury without any adjudication whatever by the proper tribunal the court of claims to prove this true would be to prove a curious thing surely that the secretary a mere citizen like anybody else has the presumption to put himself above the supreme of the land he coolly overrides that law and serenely plans and executes as if there were no such law in existence a feeble effort was made in the senate three weeks ago to inquire into this matter but many of the members hesitated to meddle with it and mr fessenden with persistent solicitude warred against the movement day after day he argued that it was not worth while to trouble the court of claims with its own legitimate business when the secretary of the treasury had all the necessary information in his possession and could transact it himself albeit there was no law authorizing him to so transact it ours is a funny government in some respects a dark mystery still hangs over that two hundred million dollars per annum business also the secretary's continual overestimates of expenses and vast underestimates of receipts which have had the effect of inducing congress to increase the burden of taxation enormously to meet the imaginary demands of his department have exasperated the people exceedingly 
the secretary's contraction system at the time when the industrial interests of the country are not able to bear the increased pressure it entails is regarded with high disfavor by all engaged in commerce and manufactures mr stewart of nevada went into this war against the secretary of the treasury yesterday with more vim and spirit than any other senator has yet ventured upon and his speech is much commented upon in political circles and applauded in the course of it he read a letter from a detroit manufacturer which was ably written and bitingly statistical a letter which showed by plain figures that a large amount of taxation now imposed upon our industrial interests could be easily removed and that its continuous is not warranted in any way by the necessities of the treasury department the letter also says that a charge of falsification in the matter of absurd and injurious estimates could unquestionably be maintained against the secretary and further that in any other country if the head of the treasury should be so outrageously incorrect he would be compelled by a deceived people to resign Stewart's speech was upon the bill to suspend further reductions of the currency, a bill which is considered to be of the nature of a vote of censure and want of confidence in the Secretary of the Treasury. During the debate, Senator Nye also made a few remarks, and as they give the effect of the Secretary's operations in a nutshell, I copy them. I have a vague recollection of a law being passed authorizing the Secretary of the Treasury as the compound interest notes became due to issue three per cent certificates or securities of some kind to supply the deficiency thus created i was told in new york the other day that during the two months preceding the election there were fifty three million dollars of compound interest notes retired together with eight million dollars of united states notes making sixty one million dollars and at the same time a circular was issued to the banks to keep good their reserve the banks that had been holding those fifty three million dollars had to get in legal tenders to supply their places the effect of this was to contract the currency some sixty one million dollars at once which raised the price of money in new york from five to eight per cent and in chicago to as much as sixteen per cent and prevented the obtainment of the means for bringing forward the vast products of the west that is what i was told before they get through with this bill of censure it is likely that congress will rouse up and shake off its sleepiness and make a row that will discover to the world whether there is any rascality in the treasury department or not and if so about how much the worrell sisters were still playing at the new york theatre in new york when i was there spending the holidays the other day i did not see them but i heard the young men talk about them the young men seem as if they are not going to get over the fascination those girls have inspired them with another worrell brigade is being found if gossip is in order i will mention that sophie was to sail for havana with her mother and a mr lovell about ten days ago Mr. Lovell is a bachelor, forty-five, and rich, but consumption has its grip upon him, and it is believed he cannot recover. His journey to Havana was undertaken for his health. He thinks the world of Sophie, and would like to marry her, but she will not consent, of course. Lovell has been kind to the family, however, and of service to them in every way that he could, and their appreciation of these 
has moved them to care for and assist him to their utmost upon this his last journey it is said he has no heirs and insists upon leaving his fortune to sophie old curry is here old abe curry and he has gotten up regardless he is the observed of all observers i think curry is the best dressed man in washington he has a plug hat with a bell crown to it it is of the latest paris style and has a rim that is curled up at the sides it is the shyest hat in washington and he wears black broadcloth pants with straps to them while marseilles vest and a blue claw hammer coat with a double row of brass buttons on it like a major general his cravat is perfectly stunning it looks like it might have come off the end of a rainbow his mustache is turning out handsomely and he swings a rattan stick and wears lemon-colored kid gloves he also has a superb set of false teeth but he has to carry them in his pocket most of the time because he can't swear good when he has them in he goes browsing around the presidents and the departments trying to talk french because he is playing himself for a foreign duke you know note bene i may have exaggerated my old friend's costume and performances a little but then this is the man that detained my baggage in carson once and gave me that infamous account of the hopkins massacre and i can never never forgive him for it he says he is here to get seeds from the patent office for treadway and jim sturdivant a likely story he wants to get another appropriation to put another layer of stone on that mint i guess i expect i had better find out what curry is about and keep an eye on him he will be wanting to run this government next Claggett has been here during the past few days on Montana and Nevada business, visiting relatives, etc. The Town Site Bill. In the Senate on Thursday, Mr. Stewart's bill concerning town sites in Nevada, which has for its object to afford a relief to Virginia and other Nevada towns, which Secretary Browning said he could not afford himself the way the old law stood—I have spoken of this bill in a former letter—was taken up and so amended as to make the operation of the law general upon all the lands of the union and in this shape it was ordered to be engrossed and filed for a third reading there is little question that it will become a law mark twain p s i lectured here last night end of section thirty